Welcome to the April 9th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll examine data on the impact of the FDG uptake level on predicting subsequent high-grade histological transformation in follicular lymphoma, Explore clonal tracking in gene therapy patients as a method for understanding human hematopoiesis, and we will review a study on the recognition of platelet factor IV von Willebrand factor complexes by heparin-induced thrombocytopenia antibodies as a basis for the pathogenesis of HIT. First up, we'll assess data presented in the blood article entitled Baseline SUV Max Did Not Predict Histological Transformation in the Phase 3 Gallium Study in Follicular Lymphoma by Farheen Murr from Royal Marsden Hospital, United Kingdom, and colleagues. Two major points of the report were that baseline standardized maximum uptake value, or BSUV Max, did not predict histological transformation, or HT, in patients in the gallium study, and that rebiopsy to exclude HT based on SUV max alone may provide little benefit in de novo patients with high tumor burden follicular lymphoma. Follicular lymphoma, or FL, encompasses approximately 70% of all low-grade non-Hodgkin lymphomas and typically follows an indolent clinical course. Less than 4% of patients, 10 years after rituximab-based treatment, undergo HT. Detecting high-grade transformation of FL helps with prognosis and for treatment decisions where patients may be offered anthracycline-based therapy. However, one of the challenges of transformation is that it's not unusual to find both low- and high-grade disease in different areas of the body, and a biopsy obtained from one site does not rule out the presence of high-grade disease in other sites. Clinical features that suggest HT include a rapid growth of masses, rapid increase in symptoms, or LDH, or a significant change in the tempo of a previously indolent disease course. HT may also be suspected based on imaging features. However, most studies have been small in size and retrospective and do not provide sufficiently robust clinical guidance. Prior studies have either compared uptake in low-grade versus aggressive lymphomas or uptake in transformed versus non-transformed low-grade lymphoma. Data from the former set of studies suggested that an SUV max cutoff of 10 to 13 on PET scan be used to differentiate low-grade and aggressive lymphomas. With this background, Murr and colleagues analyzed the relationship between PET BSUV max and future risk of HT from the 549 patients enrolled in the Phase 3 gallium study. These patients had high tumor burden, that is, grade 1 through 3A de novo FL, and received either obinutuzumab or rituximab-based chemotherapy induction. In the author's analysis, the relationship between BSUV max and HT risk was assessed using cutoff values for SUV max of greater than 10 and greater than 20. Overall, 15 out of 549 patients, or 2.7%, experienced biopsy-confirmed HT with a median follow-up of 59 months. 
Interestingly, over 65% of patients had a BSUV max of greater than 10, with 3.3% of these individuals developing HT. Only 1 out of 74, or 1.4% of patients with a BSUV max greater than 20, experienced HT. In addition, the median BSUV max in patients with versus those without HT was 12.4 versus 11.8, respectively. The difference between BSUV max of the most and least FDG avid lymphoma sites, referred to as the median BSUV range, was 8.0 versus 7.1, which was not significantly different. The authors also found that there was no temporal relationship between BSUV max and HT. Neither BSUV max nor BSUV range predicted HT, suggesting there may be little benefit in rebiopsy of lesions to exclude HT based on SUV max alone before initiating therapy in patients with high tumor burden FL. In summary, rates of subsequent HT were not significantly higher in patients with baseline SUV max greater than 10 or greater than 20, and median SUV range was not significantly different between patients with or without HT. These findings therefore challenge the notion that in de novo cases, HT can be suspected based on the level of uptake alone. While the results of this study challenge the practice of repeating biopsy of high SUV max areas, it is still advisable to direct the first biopsy to areas of highest SUV max whenever feasible. In addition, because these findings are derived from a population of untreated high tumor burden FL, they do not necessarily apply to disease assessment at the time of relapse. One of the greater challenges for the medical community is the balance between avoiding unnecessary biopsies versus accurate and timely diagnosis of HT. Improvements in radiomics, image biomarkers, and machine learning may allow more precise determination of HT in the future. As always, however, clinical judgment remains a mainstay of evaluating disease transformation. Next up, we'll discuss the blood article entitled Clonal Tracking in Gene Therapy Patients Reveals a Diversity of Human Hematopoietic Differentiation Programs by Emmanuel Six from INSERM in France and international colleagues. Key points of the report were that the estimated number of active repopulating hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells, or HSPCs, correlated with the number of HSPCs per kilogram infused, and that human HSPC clonal lineage outputs demonstrated the presence of myeloid-dominant, lymphoid-dominant, and balanced cell subsets. Hematopoietic stem cells, commonly referred to as HSCs, are defined by their ability to self-renew while producing daughter cells capable of differentiation and thus enabling the sustained production of all blood cell lineages. As described in the study, Prior data from in vitro differentiation and transplantation assays in murine models have suggested that HSCs differentiate into multipotent progenitors, which in turn give rise to early committed progenitors that progressively lose their self-renewal ability. The early committed progenitors segregate into common myeloid progenitors and common lymphoid progenitors. However, 
This classical model has been challenged by the identification of other self-renewing progenitors, including cells that have lost their megakaryocyte and erythroid potential, known as lymphomyeloid-restricted progenitors, and cells that have retained their long-term myeloid and megakaryocyte potential, referred to as myeloid-restricted progenitors. Cells may thus lose their multipotency while retaining the ability to self-renew and produce a restricted number of lineages. The classical model has been further challenged by the documented heterogeneity of murine HSC self-renewal and reconstitution, and the identification of stem cells that can give rise to cell populations with different myeloid to lymphoid ratios. Most recently, the combination of genetic barcoding and labeling methods with murine transplantation studies has increased the accuracy of clonal tracking and confirmed the existence of discrete HSC subsets and multilineage and or oligolineage HSC clones. In gene therapy with HSPCs, each gene-corrected cell and its progeny are marked in a unique way by the integrating vector. This feature enables lineages to be tracked by sampling blood cells and using DNA sequencing to identify the vector integration sites. Using these methods, a pioneering study in four patients with Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, or WAS, showed that reconstitution occurred in two waves with a 12-month time interval between cell transplantation and the establishment of steady-state hematopoiesis. This is consistent with myeloid and lymphoid lineages segregating relatively late in development. In the current study, Six and colleagues evaluated six patients, including four subjects with WAS and two individuals with beta-hemoglobinopathies who had undergone successful gene therapy with integrating lentiviral vectors. From each patient, the five cell types that were studied and sorted from peripheral blood included granulocytes, monocytes, T-cells, B-cells, and natural killer cells. The investigators determined that the estimated minimum number of active repopulating HSPCs, ranging from 2,000 to 50,000, was correlated with the number of HSPCs per kilogram infused. As the authors indicate, quantifying the lineage output and dynamics of gene-modified clones is usually challenging due to sparse sampling of the various cell types during the analytical procedure, contamination during cell isolation, and different levels of vector marking in the various lineages. In an effort to provide a thorough analysis of the HSPC lineage output, the authors measured the residual contamination and corrected the statistical models accordingly. A cluster analysis of the HSPC lineage output highlighted the existence of several stable, distinct differentiation programs. The investigators detected multipotent HSPCs accounting for about two-thirds of the total number of clones in the four patients analyzed. Coexisting among this bigger pool of unbiased multipotent HSPCs were lineage-biased progenitors comprising both myeloid-dominant and lymphoid-dominant HSPCs, with the latter heavily biased towards the production of T-cells. One of the questions that remains is whether these lineage-dominant clones are the result of the actual transplant process or whether they in fact reflect unperturbed human hematopoiesis. In fact, Prior studies in mice indicated that differences in hematopoietic differentiation programs may be influenced by the transplant conditioning regimen. In summary, 
Six and colleagues dissected the heterogeneous nature of the cell lineage output from HSPCs and provided methods for analyzing these complex data. Looking ahead, long-term follow-up of gene therapy patients will facilitate the characterization of HSPC subset dynamics and the investigation of hematopoietic hierarchies in humans. Ultimately, this type of assessment might help to optimize the isolation and handling of HSPCs for gene therapy and transplantation. Lastly, we'll review the report published in Blood entitled Recognition of PF4 VWF Complexes by Heparin-Induced Thrombocytopenia Antibodies Contribute to Thrombus Propagation by Ian Johnston from the University of Pennsylvania and his colleagues. Key points of the report were that platelet factor 4, or PF4, bound to von Willebrand factor, or VWF strings, form antigenic complexes that are recognized by HIT antibodies, and that PF4 VWF HIT antibody complexes enhance platelet adhesion via platelet FC gamma receptor 2A and GP1B9 receptors. Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, commonly referred to as HIT, is one of the most prothrombotic disorders in medicine. The condition is initiated by antibodies that target antigenic complexes between PF4 and heparin. The resultant immune complexes activate platelets, monocytes, neutrophils, and endothelial cells, generating an intensely prothrombotic environment. However, the risk of thromboembolism in HIT extends beyond the duration of heparin exposure, which may implicate other polymeric molecules capable of binding PF4 in antigen formation, including cell surface glycosaminoglycans, DNA, polyphosphates, and bacterial components. Prothrombotic pathways initiated by these alternative mechanisms of antigen formation may be relatively resistant to current antithrombotic therapies, but may offer new therapeutic targets for patients with HIT. HIT patients who were diagnosed based upon a positive platelet activation assay with immunoassay corroboration have roughly a 50% frequency of thrombosis. For example, 15 to 20% suffer arterial events. 30 to 60% develop venous clots, and a small percentage of patients experience both types of thrombi. Johnston and colleagues recently reported that perithrombus endothelium is targeted by HIT antibodies, but the binding site had not been identified. The authors now show that PF4 binds at multiple discrete sites along the surface of extended strings of VWF, released from the endothelium following photochemical injury in an endothelialized microfluidic model system under flow. The resulting PF4 VWF complexes form antigen sites recognized by HIT antibodies. As a consequence of binding by HIT antibodies, the result is a greater accumulation of platelets to the injured endothelium. According to the investigators, a HIT-like monoclonal antibody KKO and HIT patient antibodies recognized PF4 VWF complexes, promoting platelet adhesion and enlargement of thrombi within the microfluidic channels. 
Platelet adhesion to the PF4 VWF hit antibody complexes was inhibited by antibodies that block FC gamma receptor 2A or the glycoprotein 1B9 complex on platelets. Both N-acetylcysteine, or NAC, which reduces the disulfide bonds linking individual monomers of VWF, and ADAM-TS13, which cleaves VWF multimers under sheer, attenuated, photochemical, injury-induced, carotid arterial occlusion induced by HIT antibody in a murine model. NAC had a more pronounced effect on carotid occlusion in the murine model. This may relate to other hemostatic effects of NAC, or because ADAM-TS13 has been rendered relatively ineffective, for example, by oxidation of its target cleavage site on VWF. In summary, these studies demonstrate that assembly of hit immune complexes along VWF strings released by injured endothelium might propagate the risk of thrombosis in HIT. These data could explain, in part, the tendency of HIT to manifest as arterial thrombosis and could also help to understand the ongoing risk for thrombosis after discontinuation of heparin therapy, as well as ongoing thrombocytopenia and persistent elevation of markers of hypercoagulability. This study offers the prospect for novel treatment approaches to mitigate the adverse pathophysiological consequences of HIT, including agents that decrease the size of VWF multimers or their self-association into macromolecular strings, as well as drugs that inhibit platelet-VWF interactions. These intriguing concepts will surely be evaluated in the clinical setting in the near future. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.